I'm Jonathan. I'm a graduate student in the Harvard Biophysics program, and today I'm talking to Professor Hernan Garcia at the University of California, Berkeley. He's an assistant professor in the departments of molecular and cell biology and of physics, and his research focuses on using DNA sequence to predict the developmental decisions a cell will make in the course of an organism's development. Hi, Hernan. Hey, how's it going? It's good, thanks. Thank you for inviting me today. Yes, thank you for coming to talk. Um, so I guess we could start if you could just give us a brief overview of what kind of research you do. Sure. Yeah. So, so my background is in physics, and I started grad school actually thinking of, of doing what you would call pure physics, like the sorts of things that you could think of as quantum computing or string theory, those types of things. And, but, in, but, but I always had, a, had an interest for biology, but I didn't quite know what biophysics was. And so when I started grad school, I, I got involved in biophysics research and it really caught my imagination. And, and what I found to be fascinating is the fact that for the most part, not, not entirely, but for the most part, physics had just been focusing on inanimate matter for 500 years. And only now were we starting to attack living matter in the same way that we've been dealing with inanimate matter. So it just felt like there were a lot of opportunities there to understand living systems and that maybe maybe living systems would also lead ultimately to some new physics maybe yeah so so the i would say my overall interest is in in showing that biology can be predictive okay what i mean by that is when you talk to a lot of people they they, they, they about any any biological system they the complexity seems to be celebrated. You know, there's all sorts of, you know, there are many molecular players that are coming together. It's hard, if not impossible, to keep track of the, of the position of each of them. And, and that's typically used as an argument for saying that you cannot write governing equations, you cannot be predictive uh, of biological phenomena. My research is focused on showing that, no, sure enough, it's complicated. Biology is complicated, but it doesn't mean that it's necessarily complex. I mean, physicists know how to sweep the details they don't need under the rug. And think of statistical mechanics, for example, the, all the power that, that that theory gives you without having to invoke the position of each one of the gas molecules in, in a room. So, so yeah, my objective, in, my overall objective is to show that biology or living matter can be predictive, just as physics has shown that inanimate matter can be predictive. And when you say predictive, what are your starting points there? So for statistical mechanics, you would try to predict the behavior of a gas, for example, from first principles of how the molecules move and then ignore the parts that are too complicated to deal with. Yeah, that's one. Although, although for, you know, you don't, to be, to have the theory of statistical mechanics, to, for it to be giving you interesting results, you don't need to know what's happening with each molecule, right? That's kind of the, the idea here. So it's not always true that you need to know all the information about the constituents, right? To, you know, to build a bridge, you don't need to know the quarks. You don't need to know where the quarks are, yeah. right? So, so yeah, so what does, it mean in, what does it mean in the context of biology? Well, specifically, I've been interested in, in trying to see whether this, is, this sort of predictive understanding can be achieved in the context of the regulation of gene expression, basically in the context of cellular decision-making. How do cells 
decide what they're going to have for dinner or what they're going to be when they when they divide in within an organism and become a, a multicellular organism. Okay, so how does a cell from an embryo decide to become part of a, a kidney cell, a brain cell, or a muscle cell, for example? In the lab, we're interested in demonstrating whether cellular decision-making, whether the, the process of cells making decisions based on information of their environment or based on information of where they are along an, em uh, along an embryo, whether those decisions can be predicted. So, but but I, I need to give you some background for that. So, well, one, one thing that you need to remember is like, let's, let's think of, of our bodies, right? We have on the order of three times 10 to the 14 cells in our body. And each one basically has the exact same DNA molecule inside its nucleus. Okay, so you got you got three billion base pairs worth of DNA written in the language of ATCs and Gs. And even though each one of these cells has the exact same DNA molecule, some cells decide to be part of the skin, the eye, the the brain. And so, how does this happen? Well, it turns out that so it, it turns out that it, the the difference between these cells doesn't uh, reside in the in their DNA content, but in the in the sets of proteins that they produce. So there are proteins that give the cell an identity of a neuron. There are proteins that give cell the cells the identity of a skin cell, for example. And which proteins get produced when, where, and at what rate, for the most part, is determined by the process of reading out the genes that encode for the protein on the DNA. So this is the process of transcription, where a little machine called the polymerase, the RNA polymerase machine, which is basically like a Xerox machine, lands near the gene of a, of a particular protein, makes a copy of that gene in the, in the form of messenger RNA, and that messenger RNA is then translated by another molecular complex called the ribosome into proteins. What people have realized is that to a large degree, although it's, this is, there are always exceptions, and this is by no means the only strategy for cellular decision-making, is that the production of proteins can be regulated by allowing this RNA polymerase Xerox machine to bind in the vicinity of the gene, or by restricting its, its binding to the gene. So how does this regulation take place? How does, the, how does this access and, and restriction of access to the gene take place? Well, it turns out that in the vicinity of genes, you can also have binding sites for other proteins whose sole role is to activate or repress a gene. The idea then is that you, you can have a, a gene that has an activator binding site and a repressor binding site, and depending on the environmental conditions, for example, the activator will bind or the repressor will bind, and in that way, you can, you can regulate the expression of a gene. The question that we're asking is, if I gave you a piece of DNA with a gene, or if I told you where the binding sites for each one of these activators and repressors are, would you be able to tell me what the output amount of protein production is as a function of the input amount of activators and repressors? Very much in the same way that if I gave you a drawing of an electronic circuit, you would be able to predict the output current from the input voltage without doing any experiments. You would just go one to one of the electronics manuals, open it up, look at the different electronic parts, put them together, write the equation, and you could predict it without the need to do any experiments. So can we reach a predictive understanding of cellular decision-making of the control of genes, of the control of gene expression that allows us you to predict the protein production levels from knowledge of the arrangement of binding sites for activators and repressors on the DNA. That's the, that's the I would say, the next layer in the challenge that we're trying to pose. The first one is, can biology be predictive? The second one is, we're asking this question in the context of how cells make decisions. 
And more specifically, in my lab, we asked this question in the context of how cells make decisions within an animal embryo, which our main workhorse is right now, the, the embryo of the fruit fly. And this is what gives rise to your quote of using the fruit fly as a test tube, right? Exactly, exactly. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about that idea. And so, you know, in, in my PhD, I, I worked a lot on, on bacteria, on the bacterium E. coli. And there we were excited also about thinking, well, there are all these experiments that people did in a really quantitative fashion in test tubes in vitro, where you have control of, the, of all the molecular parts because you're reconstituting them. What happens now when you try to recreate those experiments with the same rigor and, and, and the same control or similar control inside a living cell? And if you can do this, if you can pull this off in bacteria, why can't you try to pull this off in animal cells? The complication there being more than one cell. More than one cell, absolutely, absolutely. And I would say, so I've had my lab now for five and a half years. Much of the efforts over the last five years have been devoted to developing the technology that makes it possible to launch this inquiry into cellular decision-making in multicellular organisms in a quantitative fashion to go back and forth between theory and experiment. Some of this technology that you mentioned, would that be microscopy techniques to visualize things better or more like more targeted genetic changes to the fruit flies to know what a gene does? In the last few years, they, they, we, we've had some breakthroughs that have to do with better microscopes. But I would say the biggest hurdle was from the, the standpoint of building the right fly. You know, when you want to characterize an electronic circuit, you need a voltmeter and an ampmeter and, and, and such. We had no technology to ask how much of this gene is being made in this cell at this time point in the living embryo. Much of the effort over the last few years has been centered on developing technologies that allows you even to measure the dynamics of the process of cellular decision-making. Because I guess without that, to go with the circuit analogy, you'd basically be trying to figure out what each part of a circuit does by flipping a switch and seeing what happens in the end. For example, yes. I mean, one approach, and it's been super successful. I mean, let's not minimize the successes of genetics, but one approach has been, well, what does this do? I, I delete it, and then I see whether it kills the fly or not, or whether it, it loses a segment or not, and such. Those have allowed us to basically map almost all the activators and recursors that determine the body plan, the early, the, the body plan of the fly in, in its early development. So that's a fantastic point to start with. You have, you have the parts list, and you have how these different molecular parts are connected, which activator talks to which gene, which repressor talks to which other gene, which ones have, where the feedbacks are and all that. But it's still, I would claim, a, a qualitative understanding of the process. What we're trying to do now is stand on the shoulders of, of these giants that have mapped the, the regulatory network of the fly and try to see whether we can put in numbers, whether we can actually predict the outcome of this regulatory network from knowledge of its parts list, from knowledge of where the binding sites are and, and such. But even to even begin with that, you can write all the models you want, but if you don't have the data, if you don't have access to the data to test those models, you're gonna, you're, you're, you're gonna have to stop very quickly. So you mentioned statistical models and we talked about statistical mechanics earlier, or how does the idea of statistics and statistical mechanics play into predicting developmental decisions here? The idea, as I mentioned before, is that there are activators and repressors that bind to the DNA. When they bind, they recruit or they, they um, inhibit the polymerase sterox machine from the, the binding to the vicinity of, of the gene. So what does this binding look like? Well, I mean, you could think of it as a, as a Velcro, like the, the, the activator has a little Velcro that, and the other part of the Velcro is on the DNA. And this is true. 
if it wasn't for the fact that the activator and the, uh, and the repressors are living inside a cell and they're being constantly bombarded by water molecules, by all the molecules that are just floating around. This constitutes a thermal background and it comes from the fact that cells live at temperatures that are above the absolute zero. And the interesting thing is that the binding energies, the energy of that Velcro, of the activator and repressors to the DNA, is comparable to the energy with which they're being bombarded by the molecular vacuum. And when you're in this regime, it's hard to say, is a protein bound or not? Because it's it, you're, you're dealing now with probabilities. What is the likelihood that I'll find it bound? What is the likelihood that I won't find it bound? Statistical mechanics allows us to answer that question, but it's basically one of the wonderful things about statistical mechanics that, it's, it's, it's that, that it allows you to calculate probabilities of certain molecular states, in this case, bound and unbound, when the energies of those states are comparable to, my, to the thermal background. So again, it allows you to sweep all the stuff about these constant random molecular interactions and molecular bombardment of the activators and repressors under the rug and gives you an immense amount of predictive power. We applied these models to regulation of, uh, of genes in bacteria, and it works like a charm. So we started applying the same models in the case of, of development, complex multicellular organisms. And the interesting thing is that we're saying that there are cases where there is a clear failure of the statistical mechanical framework, okay, which calls now for non-equilibrium models and such. So, uh, so we're just now that we have these technologies to quantify gene expression in living embryos, we're starting to confront those measurements with our theoretical models, and we're starting to see that some of the main assumptions of the of statistical mechanics break down. And so that means that we need to go back to the drawing board and come up with new models that we can test experimentally. There's a problem with the assumption that everything was in equilibrium. Could you maybe elaborate on that a little bit? When you, when you say, I'm going to calculate the probability of finding a protein bound to the DNA, the main assumption is that in this process, no energy is being consumed, okay? And that the binding and unbinding of, the, of, of this uh, activator or repressor it's much faster than the process that come later on. Like, for example, the production of the RNA. If this is true, then you're, you're in quasi-equilibrium, which means that for the purposes of the, of the production of RNA, it does look like the binding and unbinding is in equilibrium. You know, there's no reason why this would have been true in bacteria, but it's, the models seem to work. Although it's clear that equilibrium models work, it could also be a non-equilibrium system. It's just that... You, you can distinguish it with the types of measurements that we're doing. Okay, you could be right for the wrong reason. Now, in the fly, what we've been finding is that at least you seem to have to invoke energy consumption in one step. And that is a step that DNA is not always accessible for activators and repressors. The human genome is on the order of two, three meters long, and you need to pack it in a, in a nucleus of diameter of 50 microns. So the way that is made possible is by DNA being wrapped around these proteins that create these so-called nucleosomes, so you get very, very high compaction of the chromatin. But by compacting the DNA, you also make it non-accessible to activators and repressors. There are all these other proteins that can bind to the DNA and, and evict nucleosomes or move them around or, or change its chemical composition. Many of these proteins require energy, and we think that that energy expenditure is showing up in our measurements. Why specifically the fruit fly? Um, I know it's has multiple cells and more complicated than E. coli. How easy is it to translate what you would learn in a fruit fly to an organism that we might be a little bit more selfishly interested in like humans? 
you know, I'm doing basic science. And we know that basic science has led to all sorts of innovations that have made their way to, to health and to other applications. So, so, you know, I mean, I think we need to be careful not to be so arrogant as to assume that we understand where things are going. But on top of that, the, the fruit fly has been now the, I think, the, the source of at least four different Nobel Prizes in, in medicine and biology. Even the claim about it using a more selfish organism or whatever you want to call it is, is not founded, I would say. So I can tell you the reasons why I wanted to use the fruit fly. And they don't have to do with health necessarily, although I'm excited about what they might teach us about health eventually. The reason is it's transparent in the early embryo. It's basically in the early embryo, it's a ball of cells. It's like a football of cells. So you put it under the microscope and you can just see it. Back then, before CRISPR-Cas9 was around, it was the organism where you could more rapidly, in a targeted fashion, modify the genome at will. And I knew that for the type of research I wanted to do, I needed to have access to the same genomic region again and again, because I wanted to change parameters systematically. Another reason that is cool about the fly, though some people would tell you that it's too derived, is that in the early embryo, there are no cells. All the nuclei that will make the future cells exist without membranes between them. To me, as a physicist, that makes my life easier. So it sounded like a great place to get started. And I wasn't the first one to figure that out. I would say it's super relevant to biomedical research, but also it's kind of the dream model organism for quantitative developmental biology. Transitioning from there, just a little curious about what your lab setup actually looks like. So I would imagine you need somewhere to keep the flies well organized and happily fed and somewhere yeah. to actually image them. Yeah, we keep our flies in a fly room. We have a special room for our stocks, which now are probably on the order of a few thousand. Uh, you need to keep them alive, sorry, you can't freeze them which means that every three weeks we need to give them new food. And that takes a long time. So before COVID-19, we would have every three weeks, we would have a party with the lab. Everybody would, we would all flip flies and then we would go out to dinner. Now it's a little more anticlimactic every time you flip flies. But what can you do? So yeah, no, the lab is just, there's a fly room. There's a wet lab area for molecular biology. And there is also, we have access, we have a microscope in the lab, a laser scanning called focal microscope. Although we have access to all the microscopes around campus, such as lattice light sheet microscopes and, and fancier imaging technology. So in your field, if there's one question that you could just magically have answered, what would you like to just know? Well, I think now the biggest challenge that I'm getting very excited about is the starting point of these models is saying, I know where the binding sites for the active gross and recursors are. What is the output level of protein production, the output level of gene expression? In order to even get started with that, you need to know where the binding sites are. And it's really hard to know that. So what I would love to do if I could stomp my fingers and, 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 and wish for something is to have a technology that allows me to, in, in one experiment, know all the binding sites that are controlling a gene. Just wondering if there are any initiatives in your lab or in your department focused on increasing diversity, reaching out to populations that wouldn't otherwise maybe go into your field. Yeah, so I span three fields or three different graduate programs. Those are, that's where my students come from. One is biology or molecular and cell biology. One is biophysics and the other one is physics. And I would say the main issue is that we don't get a very diverse pool of applicants. I mean, that's on us in the potential applicants not feeling like Berkeley would be the place for them. Potential applicants not even knowing that Berkeley could be the place for them. The, the efforts that I've been involved in, a committee we have in, in my department on, on diversity, equity, and inclusion, is to establish long-term working relationships 
with programs that help undergrads at other universities learn about and get ready for grad school. And in particular, we're, we've been focusing on Cal State campuses because they, by, by some measure, you know, they better reflect the demographics of California. And one of the things that we're starting some, with the help of a bunch of people in my lab, but hopefully this will extend to the rest of the department, is start some peer mentoring network that allows undergrads at these Cal State campuses to be matched up with grad students in my department, such that they have somebody that they can go to as they try to think, okay, what should I do next? And the hope is to really start matching freshmen with grad students. So because that's where you can have the most impact, in my opinion, when freshmen are deciding, okay, what am I going to do during the summer? How should I plan about my summers in college? That sounds like that should be helpful for everybody. On a more whimsical note, Drosophila, or fruit fly gene names are often somewhat ridiculous. I was just wondering if you have a favorite fruit fly gene name. There's a gene that, if, the, if you get a mutation in this gene, the flies don't deal well with, with alcohol. And the gene is called cheap date. Kind of fun. But, you know, they're, they're having issues, right? Where doctors telling people that they have cancer because they have a mutation in Sonic Hedgehog. And, you know, it's understandable why people get upset. It's also not clear why you should call the gene otherwise. And a lot of those are a bit historical. They're, they're absolutely historical. And, and I, I find it, it's, it's goofy and it's kind of fun. Yeah, I just learned about Van Gogh recently. Where the, uh, Which one? Van Gogh, where the what? bristles on the cuticle end up in a swirly pattern and it looks like Starry Night. <laughs> yeah, so I think people have been having fun. And I appreciate that. And I think that's one of the things that we've lost a little bit in science. Like if you, if you ask people from the generation of Zimmer Benzer, for example, or be, before that, you know, they had lots of issues. I mean, I'm not saying that this was a, that generation was great in all senses, but they definitely were able to mix more fun with work than we do now. We're, we're, we are kind of becoming professional. And so, and there's still, I think that's kind of the cool thing about science that you can still be a little bit goofy. Well, thanks very much again for doing this. Well, it's great talking to you. 